What's up, guys? This is episode three of the Four Lifters by Lifters podcast, and today we have Eric Purcell from NPR Endurance. Um, NPR Endurance, USA Sambo. What else do you have going on? Uh, mixed martial arts, jiu-jitsu, uh, Muay Thai, striking, boxing. We kind of do it all. Cool. What, uh, you know, one of my biggest questions is really, like, what's the difference? Like, you tried to explain to me uh, the Sambo stuff before, and it was a little over my head. Uh, do you want to dig into what that is? Yeah, so um, a lot of people are familiar with mixed martial arts. You know, you're grappling, punching, kicking, striking, submissions, and all that kind of stuff. So Sambo, Sambo's been around uh, for a pretty long time. It was initially uh, a sport. Initially, really wasn't even a sport, but it all started with Joseph Stalin, actually, back in Russia. Um, so what he wanted to do is essentially... Uh, produce a, a sport, produce a combatives martial art that uh, essentially the government and, and all of the military could be trained in, things like that. Um, it became a huge sport. It's basically a combination of uh, judo and wrestling. Okay. So you have pins, you have submissions, you have all that fun stuff and throws, but there is also a combat side to it as well. So you have sport and combat and uh, so we're also like a new Olympic sport as well, too, which is going to be exciting. But in combat, Sambo, that looks very similar to mixed martial arts. So not only, not only are there throws and takedowns and pins and stuff, but you're also punching, kicking, headbutts. We do it all. So you headbutt somebody and just knock them out. So is this like a uh, Russian version of like Krav, like in origin? Well, Origin, yeah, kind of, right? Okay. Um, so the difference is, though, with something like Krav Maga, Krav Maga is uh, specifically supposed to be just a combative um, training program, where Sambo is actually sports as well. So, okay. uh, But, yeah, it's similar kind of origin, but uh, the Russia, they molded it into something that could be taught. It could be taught to kids. could be taught to pretty much everyone as well. So you guys have a lot of different programs that you're teaching at NPR. So everything you listed is something that you have an individual program for? Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. So do you have something that kind of like puts them all together too? Well, basically your mixed martial arts um, is kind of the, uh, the, the focal point in the center of what we do, uh, especially considering not only are you learning mixed martial arts, the sport and things like that, we have like a lot of fighters, but just for general self-defense, if you're a police officer, we have a lot of women that want to do mixed martial arts, obviously, for self-defense purposes. It's going to be the end-all, be-all to learning how to really defend yourself. And that's our primary goal is to make sure everyone that walks through the door has a better understanding of self-defense. But we do have a lot of other athletes that, as well, are high-level you know, competitors in the sport. So do you have people that compete in each section of yeah. MMA? Yeah, yeah. So we have people, uh, mixed martial arts fighters, um, some very high-level guys, especially around here. Um, we have, in our combat sambo program, we are the United States Training Center for that. So I'm one of the USA coaches. I'm also one of the USA athletes. We have a lot of the United States athletes directly out of our gym, as well okay. as some of the other coaches as well. We have, we've won probably almost more medals for combat sambo out of athletes from our gym than probably combined in the United States. Do you feel like... Um... I feel like some sports tend to migrate to certain like geographic areas. Do you feel like this area just kind of is very competitive in Sambo? Well, it's, it's becoming more competitive. We've had 
back in the 90s when I first started Sambo, Sambo was a little bit more popular. You had jiu-jitsu and Sambo were kind of like neck and neck. Okay. There were some Sambo places, and there was really only one or two jiu-jitsu places you could train in. And what jiu-jitsu did, they did a phenomenal job of they have the belt system, they have a very good structure, and they were able to build a sport in the United States where, unfortunately, Sambo kind of fell off the map for a while. But there's been a major resurgence lately because you have a lot of UFC fighters or Sambo guys. Um, and we're doing a lot of the big push in the United States directly out of our gym as well because we're always at the world championships. And, I mean, we're literally competing and fighting around the world. So how does uh... – Obviously, jiu-jitsu and sambo are different sports, but is somebody that is good at jiu-jitsu, like uh, I believe one of your coaches is a pretty high-level guy for yeah. jiu-jitsu, uh, how does that translate over to sambo? Well, you – so so this is where jiu-jitsu gets like a little complicated. When jiu-jitsu kind of originated back in Japan, you had Japanese jiu-jitsu, okay. and that was like your first jiu-jitsu, and that was a very well-rounded self-defense martial art. You had like a lot of throws and takedowns, and they talked about uh, there was like a lot of weapons retention. It was really your end-all, be-all of self-defense, essentially. Um, out of that, judo was formed out of Japanese jiu-jitsu, and then out of judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was formed. Okay. So now we have kind of a sport-style jiu-jitsu is taught in the United States, which a lot of times there's not – a lot of jiu-jitsu places don't really teach many takedowns. Um, it's very, we're on the ground, we start on the ground oriented. And that is phenomenal for if you do end up on the ground in a fight. And I think jujitsu is, when you want to speak directly about learning ground grappling, that's the end all be all. It's as advanced as you get, and it's constantly changing and evolving. Now, if you want to prevent the fight from going to the ground and you want to be able to control your surroundings better, right. you're definitely better off at this day and age learning something like Sambo or Judo or wrestling for that. Because that, what that's going to do is hopefully prevent you from even going to the ground. Going to the ground is, is really the last thing you want to have happen in the middle of a street fight. Because I could take you down, but I don't know if you have friends that are going to come and start soccer kicking me in the head. You know, We don't know what's going on. So yeah. I would rather just grab you, take you down, control you, and have the ability to run, have the ability to know what's going on around me at all times. So old school jiu-jitsu, Japanese jiu-jitsu, you can learn that and know kind of everything. This day and age, it's very everything's a little bit more segmented. So for your ground stuff, uh, you've got your Brazilian jiu-jitsu, everything like that. It's phenomenal. But standing, wrestling, judo, Sambo, you're not going to get any better in that than that. Really. So we have a, a good amount of customers that participate in uh, jujitsu, and one of the reasons they like it so much is just uh, the mental game of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, so a lot of them relate it to like chess, yeah. where you can't really have the perfect formula to win. Uh, do you see that a lot with like the people that you know? Not everybody wants to be the best in the world. So with yeah. your membership base, do you see a lot of people that take it just for the strategic like value? Yeah, the, so here's here's the the real beauty of jiu-jitsu, and this sets jiu-jitsu apart from even sambo. It sets it apart from wrestling, sets it apart from everything else. The beautiful thing about jiu-jitsu is a lot of jiu-jitsu is about kind of taking someone's energy and using it against them. So, for example, if you're a good wrestler and you take me down and I'm on my back, I can use my guard. I don't have to use muscle to really defeat you, essentially. Um, I can use it through a series of techniques, and I can kind of play chess, set you up. You don't have to be a D1 athlete 
to be absolutely phenomenal, to be a complete savage in jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu um, isn't about being the strongest, fastest, anything like that. It's really not. And that's the beauty of it. So no matter who you are, you can come in and jiu-jitsu is full of a bunch of nerds right now. And I love it. You, all the guys, the baddest dudes on the planet, they look like a bunch of millennial little nerds, <laughs> right? And they've all got, you know, the same look to them and they will strangle you faster than anybody. You would never, back in the day, you know, we've got this meathead, you know, idea of who the tough guys are. You know, they're big muscle dudes and, you know, tattoos and like bikers and, yeah. you know, and shit like that. Wrong. The baddest dudes on the planet have their pants cuffed up. You know, they got, uh, they're wearing flip-flops. They're about 150 pounds soaking wet, and they will wreck your world. It's crazy. So uh, one of the things when I was in college, uh, I went to Penn State, and uh, of course, like you have with 48,000 undergrad students, you're going to have like fights and you yeah. know parties and all that stuff Oh, happens. yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so one time I was at a, a, a party, and I was on my way home, and a kid um, started just running his mouth to me and said his hands were legal weapons. <laughs> and uh, old Bonnie, Barney Pfeiffer shit from like, I, I guess like I, I, that was the first time I'd ever heard anything like that. Uh, do fighters actually have to like register their hands? Is that a thing? No, no, it's, you know, in, uh, <laughs> I would love to have these things registered, <laughs> you know, I would, I would just, I could be more obnoxious to my wife, you know, <laughs> Um, you have a barcode on your knuckle. Yeah, but listen, baby, you don't want me to use these. You know, um, I, I've heard of stuff like that forever. To be honest with you, I don't know if that was ever a real thing or not or anywhere. Maybe it is in some state. I mean, yeah, states do some weird shit, you know. Uh, but I would, even if it was really available, to be honest with you, that's something I would never, I could never imagine anyone ever really doing. Because, I mean, I could imagine it would just set you up for so many legal ramifications if you ever had to get in a fight yeah. or if you ever started a fight. You know, it's <laughs> it would just be a bad idea across the board. But as fighters, though, we have to be extremely careful, extremely careful um, with dealing with situations. Because when people do know you're a fighter, ironically, they kind of want to start more shit with you for some reason, which doesn't make any sense to me, but... Yeah, we, we actually saw that at college a lot. We were on the powerlifting team, and, I mean, other than most of the linemen on the football team, like, the, the group that we were with were the biggest kids. Yeah. But for whatever reason, people always wanted to start something it's just crazy. because it was like a like a notch on the belt type of thing. You know, yeah. if they can beat up, uh, you know, the, the biggest powerlifter that's on campus. And, yeah, yeah. I get the one, too, where, you know, I'll go to uh, – I'll go to hang out with some, some people and, and it kind of comes up of like what I do for a living. And, and then all of a sudden they're constantly like, Oh yeah, could you take me to fight? And they're like, are you sure? You know? And that's what the whole like next like two hours is. I'm just sitting there like, no, I don't want to fight you. Like and, 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 and yeah, joke. if we did fight, I would kill you, but we're never, it's never going to come to that. Like, can we stop? Can we just enjoy the picnic? You know, we're at, you know, so yeah, you do, you, you just have to be extremely careful and you'll see a lot of fighters, uh, we get really good at walking away from these situations, get really good at diffusing them. No one wants to fight. Fighters, the last thing a fighter wants to do is fight anyone. We get paid to fight. We're professional athletes. No one wants to f start any shit on the street. But fighters will stick up for people, though. That's one thing. If you typically do see videos of fighters fighting on the street, usually it has to do with them protecting someone else or something like that. Because we can get sued. You know, it's dangerous stuff.
Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask is most of the time when uh, when I talk to anybody with any fighting experience, they never get into fights. Yeah. And uh, I think it's just they can recognize it ahead of time yeah. and they can kind of just get out of the situation. Yeah, there's there's two things at play, really. You know, number one, the more you fight and the more you learn about fighting, the more you realize that every fight, you don't really know what you're getting into. And you can't look at anyone really on the street and know exactly who they are, what they're about. Do they have weapons? Do they not have weapons? Are they crazy? Whatever. So the more you fight, the more you learn. It's like a risk-reward thing, you know? It's like, why do I even want to get in a fight? Because I understand the dangers and the pitfalls. I could get, even professional athletes, you know, could get sucker punched or could get hit with one punch and you could get knocked out and you could hit your head on the concrete, die, something like that. But the other thing at play as well, too, is... We just don't want to fight, you know. It's 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 not worth our time as well, you know, because it's only it's a lose lose situation, you know. We beat your ass, even if you deserve it, you know. Now we're going to jail, yeah, essentially. Yeah, I feel like uh, it, it wouldn't make much sense in anything, but when you're in a street fight or you know a bar fight or something like that, it's an emotional trigger. Yeah, and I feel like when you guys are fighting, it's very like strategic, and yeah, you know yeah. you've done it so many times that you're able to remove like the just the emotion completely out of the equation. Yeah. And that's exactly so. what we have to do. You know, you never want to fight emotionally. I mean, really, you don't never even want to make any decisions emotionally. You yeah. know, really in life, well, let alone go fight somebody. And the longer you know you do this as a martial artist, you're able to. A lot of these martial artists they learn how to really kind of control those emotions, anyways. And that's a great thing about learning how to do all this stuff and fighting. And you have no choice when someone's on your back and they've got their hooks in and they've got their arm around your neck and they're choking you unconscious. And you can feel yourself starting to go unconscious. The more you freak out and struggle, the faster you go out. So you have to learn how to lower your heart rate. You have to learn how to think your way tactically through the situation to unlock the grip, to remain calm, all those things. And when you take something like jujitsu, especially, you're going to learn that no matter what. Your first day in, you're going to learn how to slow down your heart rate. You're going to learn how to think your way through things. That's why it's so great for cops, police officers, because that way when you're in intense situations and you have to make, you know, these these crazy life, potentially life-changing decisions very quickly, you're able to do it in a calmer manner. I feel like it would be a, a good anti-anxiety uh, totally, training mechanism. Totally. Jiu-jitsu is different than all of the other sports where jujitsu is very zen you know you get these people in here and they just sit down and and they like to work their way through positions that chess match and and all that kind of stuff and it's very cerebral it's it's very almost like hippie-ish you'll get people because you don't have to be once again that d1 stud athlete you get people that you said i mean no muscle no they weren't athletes they didn't play sports in high school and you'll see them on the mats just murking people just all over them and uh, you realize that, yeah, when you do understand things from a technical aspect, you're able to um, get past any physical limitations you have. I mean, I've seen people with no legs doing jujitsu. Um, you, you name it, across the board. I mean, we have, we have every make and model of people you could possibly imagine. People with Down syndrome. I mean, people who are blind. I mean, everyone. People, everyone can do jujitsu and improve their lives from jujitsu. Now, a sport like Sambo, where we're grabbing and you people are getting flipped upside down and they're getting thrown and it's very explosive. 
It could be a little bit more dangerous. It's more wear and tear on the body. You don't get that same zen kind of thing with those. That's going to attract your, your super high-level athletes you know, into that. And so you kind of have a little bit more of a specific demographic for stuff like Sambo or wrestling. MMA, you know, you are attracting a lot of different people for the self-defense aspect. But in those sports particularly, you're going to get a kind of standard athlete for those. I feel like MMA kind of has a little bit of sex appeal to it just because of its publicity, uh, you know, being on the, you know, ESPN and everything else and Joe Rogan talking about it. I feel like, uh, you know, it, it's really blown up over the last, what, six to yeah. eight years, really. Yeah. yeah. So. so I've been doing this forever. And um, we were, everyone, we were always waiting for eventually for MMA to get to Madison Square Garden. That was going to be a big thing. And then eventually as well, you know, more and more sponsors getting involved and stuff like that. But it is a, a sexy sport because people are recognizing it, it's truth. You know, it's when you look at combative martial arts or you want to talk about who's tough and toughness in guys, I mean, it doesn't get any tougher. You have to fight another man for 15 minutes or even 25 minutes. I mean, most, most street fights are like 30 seconds, you know? So when you get in there, I mean, you're looking at the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. And they are. They're the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. But guys that walk in and, you know, high-level MMA, mixed martial artists, because not only are they fighting, but most of them are cutting weight. They're doing a lot of other things as well. Um, they're phenomenal athletes. They're some of the most dedicated people. I mean, we're training two or three times a day, and you're training through injuries. You're training through stress and daily, the daily grind. And these people are just badass people. Is the the training is something that kind of fascinates me. It's just the length of of training, but are you guys training that long year round, or is that only when they have fights scheduled? Um, that's a good question. So, back in the day, the way people used to really kind of run their fight camps, they would kind of just be sitting on the couch, and then maybe two months out from a fight, they would get up, start training, get back into shape, um, and then go out and fight. Now, because of the level of competition in the sport and because there's more promotions and there's more opportunities to fight and stuff like that, fighters need to be ready year-round. So essentially what we do is even when they don't have a fight scheduled, we like to keep them around that 70 75% ready to go. Uh, it's different for some fighters that maybe won't have to cut weight. If you're a heavyweight, you can kind of dial it back like a little bit more. But when we have guys like Pat Sabatini and all these guys that are very close to getting calls from the UFC – they have to stay in shape because they could get a call to the big show, you know, within a few days' notice. And so we have to keep them ready to go at all times. Have you had anybody go up to the UFC level? Yeah. What's that experience like? It's good. You know, it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun to make it there to that to that show. I mean, we've had guys in uh, on the Ultimate Fighter. Or not, not the Ultimate Fighter, the uh, Dana White Contender Series, the UFC. Uh, we've had like a lot of big high-level fights and stuff like that, and it's a great time. It's cool to see. It's a lot of fun for the fighters. It's probably more fun for all the other students and members that come to the gyms around those people because it gives them like a little sense of validation. I mean, we're professional. I'm a, I'm a professional athlete. I've been around all the major stars and people you see that are on TV now, all the fighters. I've known all these guys for, for the most part before they even started fighting. Okay. So for me, I mean, it's a little bit of validation, and it's great, and I love to see the fighters do it. But for everyone else involved, 
that maybe even help get that fighter there, their training partners, the, the other members in the gym. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's exceptionally cool for them. And that's what I give it like a lot of joy out of seeing them like super stoked about it. Is it one of those things like when you have an event like that, like you can't sleep the night before you're just like excited. You know, there's a lot of emotion that goes into it. And- you're running everything through your head about a million times, but that's similar, similar to kind of what we do already. Um, between, you know, these big fights and we have a lot of championship athletes and, and champs and stuff like that. And you're constantly, as a coach at least, I'm, I'm constantly playing every scenario in my head. And even leading up to the fight, I mean, as we're getting ready to walk in the fight, I've had guys in the cage. I mean, and they're doing the announcements and I grab them. I'm standing there at the cage. I'm like, listen, okay, I want you to do this, this, and this, like right now. Like, let's go. Like, well, sometimes we throw stuff in at the last minute. I'll see a guy in the cage pacing around. You know, we're getting ready to fight. And I'll just kind of see something. We'll come up with something real quick. We're like, listen, all right, duck, throw the overhand. He's going to fall for it. I see the way he's standing here already. So sometimes you can pick up on things pretty quickly as well, too, which is, which is fun. So you can, you can almost tell by, like, somebody's posture and how they're holding themselves what they're going to be dominant in? Sometimes, yeah. So what happens is sometimes you can tell by people's mannerisms. You can tell if they're going to come out, like, a little sluggish. Sometimes you don't know these things until they're standing in there and they're facing off. You can look at uh, someone's body language. Um, sometimes it's, it's complete bullshit. Sometimes you think, you know, you know, but, uh, for the most part, you can kind of see things in there. And when you're used to studying people and behavior and you're looking at reach and range, sometimes it's hard to tell how long a guy's arms are until he's standing there basically in his, in crowd pleasers, you know, and he's got his arms hanging down. You're like, Oh, whoa. Okay. He's got an extra inch or two on his range. Stay back an extra inch or two, stay back an extra inch or two. You know, we're yelling that. So some things you pick up kind of like late. Uh, but uh, we're always making like these adjustments and things like that as well. Are you guys hoping to have any uh, like UFC fights coming up? Is there anybody that's on the radar or has a, a contract signed? Well, we don't know what's going on right now with the the entire fighting landscape. You know, we've got uh, a couple guys that you know have some championship fights coming up when they decide to start fights again locally. Okay. Um, and they're they're local big promotions too. You know, they're lo- they're kind of like. They're national promotions, but they're locally based out of here, I guess. Um, so we have some guys getting ready to go. We've got a lot of really good amateur fighters coming up, but uh, we, there's this backlog of fights that needs to happen as well, too, before we can get everyone in and fighting once once they resume. So if you were to pick somebody, like uh, let's say you want them to be number one in the UFC, uh, I guess like a, a mid-range weight class, uh, what are you looking for? And like at what age and, you know, all that stuff, like, is there, there has to be like a, I know for at least in powerlifting, I can almost look at somebody and tell you if they're going to be any good or not. Yeah. Uh, so what age would somebody need to start training and what are like, what are the physical attributes that you'd be looking for? You know, so ideally, yeah, you would love to have some kid roll into the gym at like nine or 10 and you just take them and just mold them. Uh, those things are hard to do. We do have, we do have a little kid in our gym right now, a young guy, and uh, his name's Tommy Boyce, and he's he's one of those kids that could potentially you could look at in another six or seven years could be fighting before he's even eighteen. Um, he's already a, a state champ wrestler. He's a Pan Am Jiu Jitsu champion. Kid does everything, and he's super motivated. Like, he wants to come to the gym every day, all day, and stay in the gym. He's not one of those kids that the parents push him. They don't push him at all. They kind of sit back. 
super motivated every day he just wants to fight that's all he talks about and he talks when he's when he speaks he's got his instagram page he talks like a champion yeah. motivated i'm training today and the kid's like nine or ten years old it's crazy it's an, he's a nut and we've had him since he's been four years old so he's one and even with him you know there's so much promise and potential there but i even tell the parents i'm like look you know so many things could happen let's just you know let him do his own thing let's not push him but he's one of those kids that, yeah, could be an absolute killer one day. But really, MMA is a crazy sport. You know, we have a lot of crossover athletes now as well. So we have people that were never even have done MMA. They played other sports. They're very high level, maybe football players. Or we're getting a lot of those crossover D1 athletes now coming into MMA that for the first time are getting in, hitting the bags and stuff. But they're already such great athletes. They pick it up so quickly. We, uh, we always said that about CrossFit. Uh, CrossFit and, and don't get me wrong, like powerlifting, bodybuilding in general is usually just second rate. Uh, like people that played football and had an injury, couldn't make it. So they, they powerlift now, uh, something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I, we used to say that about CrossFit is like, if there were like if LeBron James or somebody with that genetic structure oh, yeah, yeah. did CrossFit, I mean, nobody would be able to compete. Yeah. Like, yeah. so it, it's always, uh, as all of these different niche sports get more popular it'll be interesting to see some of the the genetics go towards them yeah because yeah. there's now money there yeah. uh so if you're genetically gifted you know 10 years ago well even right now you're not going to be a power lifter there's yeah. no money in that you're never going to get paid uh at least with the way the landscape is now but now the mma and you know ufc is just so big it'd be interesting to see how uh you know, the, the earlier attraction of the higher level athletes will yeah. change the landscape. You're going to get that a lot, you know, when things like a UFC kind of first started, or not even first started, but we'll say even like in the 2000s, you had a lot of phenomenal martial artists, but they weren't like D1 athletes, you know, but they understood their martial arts, they understood their craft. And then you started sprinkling in a couple of those D1 athletes that understood martial arts as well. So you had a very inconsistent landscape. You know, you had guys that on, on paper seemed like they'd be phenomenal fighters, and they were at the time. They were okay. But you had a very inconsistent – you had some guys that were studs and some guys that sucked in the UFC or like the higher level like fighting, you know, uh, leagues and stuff like that. Now everyone's good. Everyone can, you know, jump over the building. Everyone can run fast. For the most part, everyone, they're, they're phenomenal. And, but now you're seeing women's MMA is very similar to the early 2000s MMA. You have a lot of women in there that aren't D1 athletes. They're very good martial artists, but they're slow. Um, they're, they're not exactly up on that par yet. And then you have some women athletes that are phenomenal. But it's a little inconsistent right now. But you're starting to see over the, every year – the consistency is building in women's MMA now as well, too, where pretty soon women's MMA across the board, every woman that fights is going to be an absolute savage. And some of them are so good. Um, but it's very similar to kind of a little bit more of the earlier days of men's MMA where you had some inconsistencies. Just because the barrier to entry was lower, right? Yeah. Like there, yeah. there just wasn't as many people doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in a sport like uh, mixed martial arts or anything like that, you know, they, are, they do typically in the – at least in the beginning stages of it, attract more men, stuff like that. But uh, now, you know, women want to have some fun too and get in there and punch some people. And uh, it's you're seeing it more and more and more women training a little bit more heavily, women getting into it. And uh, and I love to see it because I have three daughters. 
And um, since they've been kids, I've had them training and learning how to defend themselves and things like that, and they're tough. So if in, uh, a kid out of high school wants to come train with you and they had a high school background of competing, what sport are you hoping that they compete wrestling. in? Wrestling. 100%. 100%. Like, yeah. yeah, not even close, wrestling. Um, every once in a while, though, you'll get some kids that come out from uh, some good boxing gyms too, and that's good. Um, but uh, wrestling, if you want to build a fighter and you had to start from one martial art, I mean, across the board, almost universally, everyone's going to tell you wrestling. So, like, uh, I guess they're, they're used to cutting weight, right? So that's a big part of, like, the, the mental yeah. building over the years. Um, but obviously, you know, it, wrestling would be the closest. But are football players, like baseball players, uh, are they just not disciplined or you just don't see, you know, they, they don't have the experience level? Well, well, you know, so wrestling, not only the cutting weight thing, but before I ever stepped in, in a cage to fight, I mean, I had hundreds of wrestling matches. So I've already been used to being out there one-on-one with someone with crowds of people hollering, you fucking suck, you know, stuff like that. So we've been used to that, yeah. you know. So not only, we, or not only are you used to cutting weight, you're used to that just grind and the whole mental aspect of it because it is a grind. Um, you're used to the one-on-one competition. Football players are nice because typically they're super high-level athletes. Um, they're already used to car crashes every day, just running into each other. So typically they have a decent mindset for this. They have a, a, almost a violent mindset, okay. which uh, fits in well with MMA. We don't get too many baseball players because uh, it's, you know, it's, a typic- it's just such a different mindset. But, you know, any of those sports where typically uh, there is some kind of, like, hockey, you know, people are beating each other up or anything like that, yeah. it's easier for people like that to probably step foot into a mixed martial arts gym and start doing that as well. So I remember, uh, at least at your old facility, you have like a kind of like the size gym that we have in here. Yeah. Um, what what style of training do you push your athletes towards? Uh, do you build like custom programs per athlete, or do you have a general basis on what you guys do to, to build strength and endurance? So we do all that kind of stuff primarily on an individual basis. So we do have like our fighter training that we run everyone through on a weekly basis that is open to our, to our athletes. And it's more of just conditioning type stuff. Build a little bit of strength with that. But you have to really look at things on an individual basis when you're talking about a fighter because if they are getting ready to fight, if they're in a camp, then obviously you don't really want them strength training right. and stuff like that. So we, we kind of put them in the right direction with certain personal trainers, certain things like that, depending upon what they need. But it is an individual thing. Okay. Uh, so we do kind of put them with – the right trainers they need to be with, but as a whole, we all kind of work with everyone as far as their general fitness and, and things like that. We do like group training where we go for runs, do all that kind of stuff as well. But uh, there's a – when we are building strength, though, in our fighters, it's very important for us to work out a certain way so we're not putting on muscle because with a lot of our athletes, we have to cut weight. So we have to do like a lot of stuff like sedive style training, sedive sets, stuff like that, where you're not going to build big, you know, that volume of muscle and jack your weight up. So you're more condi- uh, like concerned about the conditioning of the muscle rather than the, uh, the size or yeah, the strength? Yeah, so, you know, there are some things you can do to build some strength in your muscles without developing size and stuff like that. So we'll pay attention to those a little bit. Uh, but overall, primarily for us, it's 
it is marathon training what we have to do because fights are so long. But we also have to build our fighters anaerobically as well, too, to make sure like they have those bursts and explosiveness and, and stuff like that as well. So it almost kind of sounds like you guys do uh, like some form of cross training. Yeah. Is that yeah. is that accurate? Like yeah, it's not yeah. CrossFit, but it's maybe a little bit more structured. Um, yeah. So are you guys using like the rowers, the ski ergs, uh, the assault bikes, that kind of stuff? Are you guys big Everything. on that? Yeah. Everything. So we have a big course outside of the back of my gym, tons of tractor tires and uh, sleds and battle ropes and stuff like that. So we have a whole training course basically we set up outside. And then everything we have inside the gym as well. Uh, we've got, you know, your aerodynes, rowers, and weightlifting equipment, kettlebells, and all of that kind of stuff as well. But So uh, I guess the last time I saw you, other than coming into the store, uh, I was at your gym to help out with some dieting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why do fighters eat so bad? Oh, my God. It like, kills me. I've never seen a diet as bad as a fighter's diet. Because a lot of these fighters, they're extremists. They have this extremist mentality where what happens is if you take them to a bar, they're going to fucking drink everything until they pass out. You know, if you want to go for a run, they want to run fucking 20 miles. You, everything that they do is nuts. So they're, they're all heavy eaters. They, and because they train so much, you know, they're, are, like these fighters, their metabolisms for the most part are crazy when we're training normally that we're used to that Lance Armstrong type of thing where you're just shoveling food in your mouth. And what happens with a lot of these guys is, yeah, they're young dudes, you know, they're fucking Taco Bell and fucking Mountain Dews, man, you know, and so we have to keep smacking them in the back of the head. I'm one of the old guys, you know, I'm in my 40s, you know, so the, uh, I've already been through the, I understand inflammation, I understand all this stuff, so I'm constantly yelling at these guys like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Um, some of them will listen, some of them won't, you know? And as they start to get older, I tell all these guys, you know, like, you better start taking care of your body. From a, a nutritional standpoint, you better be stretching, hitting saunas, I mean, doing all that stuff I have to do just to keep my old ass on the mats. So the the one diet that I looked at, I think the guy was eating uh, Taco Bell, which you had mentioned, or pizza uh, at least once a day, each one. Yeah. Uh, when you guys, so from a powerlifting standpoint, um, you know, I used to eat a whole large pizza every day just yeah. to keep my weight up. Yeah. And it just and again, I was burning a ton of calories. It's just something I, I had to do. Um, when you guys go into fight camps and you're you have certain weight classes to make, are they a little bit more diligent with what they're eating, or are they just restrictive as far as how much they're eating? Um, well, it depends if they do it right or not. You know, for example, a lot of these guys we like to try to keep their weight pretty much in check. Try to keep them within like 20 pounds of where they're going to fight. That's good yeah, so they'll basically have like 20 pounds to lose for a fight, and that's basically 10 pounds of almost fat. And then maybe another 10 pounds or 10 to 15 pounds of water weight, which we'll do kind of like a last day cut. We'll just cut like 10 to 15 pounds of water weight, we'll march them on the scale, and then we'll immediately start rehydrating. Ideally, you would like for guys to manage their diets very well and, and do everything the correct way. That way, they don't hit a wall. You know, For example, of course, we still need a certain amount of caloric intake on a daily basis because otherwise... You see it all the time with people that uh, after Christmas, you know, they go get a membership somewhere and they want to start losing weight. They go on these crash diets. They hit a wall in that first month, and then all of a sudden they never make it back to the gym. That happens to fighters very quickly because 
they're in shape and all that stuff, but if they don't get enough calories in or do it the right way and they start to weight cut, they're going to hit a wall very fast. Their body's going to lose all the cortisol. They're going to get depressed. They're going to be a little bit more prone to injuries. When I used to cut weight incorrectly, I would get sick. I had a championship fight as an amateur where I was sick as a fucking dog, but I'd already sold a bunch of tickets. I'm like, fuck it, we're going to do this. And I went and fought, and afterwards, I mean, I, I won, luckily, but it was a fucking shit show. And I almost had to go to the hospital afterwards because I was cutting weight on top of it as well, too. And you want to see everyone do everything the right way, you know, everything the right way. Of course, we are still dealing with extremists. We're dealing with people that, uh, you know, typically young dudes, you know, knuckleheads. And, uh, and I say that affectionately because I was one of those knuckleheads, you know. But, uh, yeah, you want them to listen. And, and, and this is what I kind of see with, like, a lot of these athletes. I kind of chip away at them. So maybe they don't listen to me for the first fight camp. Second fight camp, they're doing a little bit more of what I ask. And maybe third fight camp, they're doing a little bit more. And, and eventually, you know, we kind of get them on, like, a little bit of a rhythm with things. So you start to pick your battles. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where you have to do. So initially, when you get all these people that like to, like, a lot of the fighters like to eat pizza and all that shit every day. And I eat pizza all the time as well. Um, and I'm nowhere. I, I'm not. People get an idea of me. I'm a vegetarian. And people get an idea of me like I'm sitting here eating fucking clean as a whistle all day and stuff like that. Like, no, I'm a fucking pig. You know, I eat very clean throughout the entire day. At night, it's a shit show. But I, I do feel like if you're looking at MMA or UFC or whatever uh, subdivision of fighting, uh, if you want to get paid, I feel yeah. like you should take your nutrition seriously, though. Yeah. And, and some of you guys want to get paid. Like, you have your career, you have your gym. Um, you know, you run your, your meets. Um, yeah. but a lot of these guys, like this is their future. Hopefully yeah. like I, I would put more pressure on myself as an athlete. Yeah. You know what it is too? A lot of these guys, they're training two to three times a day. Sometimes they're traveling to multiple gyms. So sometimes you get done training, your body's so hungry. You're just like, man, I just need to grab something to eat. And, and yeah, I'm sure you've been there as well. Sometimes, you know, you, when you get that hunger, when you're training and, you know, when your body needs the calories as well, too, you know, you, it's almost like crackhead needs some crack, you know, it's just off an impulse. Yeah. Like yeah. that impulse. And they're going to the first place they see, you know, yeah. and uh, or it's like their brain starts to shut down. And rather than like, OK, let me take an extra half hour to make sure I'm getting something that I should eat. You know, everyone's kind of just running to Wendy's or some shit, you know, maybe that'll be a new business for you. <laughs> Meal prep. Well, <laughs> The meal prep thing is something I try to encourage everyone to do because it really is the simplest, easiest way to stay on top of some of those meals and stuff like that. So that way, yeah, you're not eating a bunch of shit. Like I used to, when I was a professional fighter, I would go to, I would kind of take all my food to the gym. I would do my first session. I wouldn't eat in the morning. Um, I would do my first session, which is typically a little bit more cardio based to train for an hour and a half, two hours. Then immediately I would sit down in the corner of the gym and I would start eating and typically clean stuff. Maybe I would take a nap for 15 or 20 minutes, just try to complete, completely shut my body down, recover. Then you get ready for your next session. And so I would try to be a little bit more meticulous about that stuff because I was cutting a significant amount of weight to fight as well. But, uh, you know, some of these other fighters, if you don't start off prepared every day, if you're not doing like a weekly meal plan or something like that, that's when you see a lot more of the hiccups with people and their, their nutrition and diets. You really have to be extremely proactive about it, I feel like, on a weekly basis, and you have to think ahead. 
It's the guys that don't do that. They're the ones that are typically going to eat more poorly. So, Well, outside of nutrition, uh, what's popular for you guys to recover? I always push um, a particular brand. You know, number one, we try to push recovery through not only through nutrition, drinking plenty of water, stuff like that, getting your rest, turning off from everything every once in a while as well. So there's, you know, not only through nutritional ways to recover, there's a lot of other ways, massage, stuff like that, getting some sunlight, fresh you guys air. Do cryo? Yeah, yeah, a lot of guys do cryo. Um, I have a sauna in my house, so I just typically just, in the morning, I'll set that thing up and I'll get in there. Um, cryo, from what I hear, is absolutely phenomenal. A lot of guys are under that, ice baths, stuff like that. Um, nutritionally as well, you know, there's a handful of supplements and things like that. We try to typically recommend fighters take to deal with the inflammation or when they're cutting, some of our athletes have to cut a significant amount of weight. So how do you cut weight and still keep your training up and not crash and burn as well? So we do have a couple of, uh, dietary things like we'll recommend for some of our athletes to take that have always been very good to us for our MMA athletes. So. What's uh, just think about cutting weight again? What's the most extreme thing that you've seen somebody do to cut weight? <sighs> Holy shit! Um, well, back, I mean, back in the day when we used to wrestle, I mean, before that, there were there were weight cutting restrictions and wrestling. I mean, we were kids and we were cutting twenty, thirty pounds every every few days. I mean, twice a week to wrestle, and none of that was unhealthy at all. I mean, it was literally. Just you would just stop eating a couple of days before your match, spitting all day, and still training. You know, I did guess, you do the trash bag? Do the trash bag, sauna yeah. suits. Um, we have stuff, you know, the other products you rub on your body at, in, in conjunction with all of that stuff. And you know, the worst thing you can do for a weight cut really is just to stop eating. You know, and just do some kind of crash diet. You know, that's terrible. So that's what we see a lot. We've also seen people uh taking um diuretics illegally which you shouldn't be taking um that'll wreck you because when you get dehydrated as well it's not just people think you're just losing water weight you're losing fluids from your brain from your vital organs from from everything it's not just your skin so what happens is it, it leaves you more prone for uh concussions um i had a really bad weight cut one time i was fighting up at the mohegan sun up in connecticut i was fighting on a big fight card a huge fight card, and I had a really tough weight cut. I typically walked around at like 215, 220, and I was fighting at 185 pounds. It was really rough and leading. Going up there, the new, uh, Connecticut State Athletic Co Commission calls me and says that they lost my blood work. So then I had to stop and give blood on the way up. I'm literally 185 pounds. Like, I look like I'm sick. It's probably easy to find your vein, though. Easy to find my vein, and that was the only time, though, I ever got dropped. You know, I came out, I fought a guy who's a, he's a top level fighter in the UFC right now. And we came out and fought and he hit me with a hook. And next thing you know, like I'm going like hanging onto his leg, you know, and that's the only time I got a hard head, you know, I've got, I, no one usually, I don't get dropped, put it that way. And, um, one punch, bang hook, you know, and we started moving around and that was the fight, you know, and I, I particularly, that was a poor weight cut in conjunction with having to also to give blood on top of that. So I've seen a lot of bad things, and I've been a part of some shitty weight cuts and stuff like that. But And they can be – people can get hurt. People can have to go to the hospital. I've seen some some tragic stuff. People have died from bad weight cuts. 
Yeah, I mean, on top of what it does to your body, your cognition, you know, just yeah. goes so far down, and you're just not as alert. You're not as alert. You're more temperamental. You know, you kind of become an asshole uh, when you're cutting weight. You know, it's like it literally is like one of those Snickers commercials. You know, where they're like, "You're acting like a real diva." Snickers. You know, when guys start cutting weight, there's guys uh, like a lot of my fighters. We're always we're always ball busting and joking around and and. Uh, pretty extreme with that in these types of environments but as guys start to cut weight and they get deep in their weight cuts especially like the week of the fight we make we tip we tippy toe around those guys like a little bit because you know definitely the everyone is way more temperamental do you try to get them to sleep more to combat the cortisol effects of dieting yeah so it's very important stuff like that they're getting the rest um, we have fighters especially guys like pat sabatini uh, back when he was early days in his professional um, you know, professional time for him, we would have to kick him out of the gym all the time because he was, he just always wanted to train. He never felt like he was training enough as well. So there were times where I'm like, dude, you need to get the fuck out of here. Go get some rest, bro. But he's one of those guys, I don't know him personally, but everything I've seen from him, uh, he looks like he's like a high energy. He looks real like lean year round. Yeah. So does he have a, does he have to cut a lot of weight for his shows? Yeah, he cuts a lot. Does he? Yeah, but he is, he trains you you like I said, he's one of those guys where he's so self motivated. Uh, throughout the entire all this coronavirus shit, you know, we've been in the gym and we've been training the whole entire time. Um, still sparring, still moving around, working on new things, uh, incorporating new skills and stuff. Like I said, he's just one of those guys that, even with this stuff going down, we're like, all right, man, I'll see you at eleven. Let's put that work in. So he's in the CFCC. So, um, the, the CFFC. CFFC? Yep. Uh, so what's it take for somebody like him uh, who's won a good amount of fights in that uh, yeah, yeah. category? Uh, what's it take for somebody like that to get the call? Well, so the problem with Pat is his weight class. The UFC has – he fights at 145 pounds. The UFC has more 145-pound fighters than any other division. Um, the last time I heard, they had around like 60 to 70 fighters in that one weight class alone. Where at like 205, they've got like maybe 20 or 30. So there's such a log jam. Um, so the UFC knows about him. Everyone knows about him. So really, it's just a matter of just getting a phone call one day with him, you know, particularly, um, which we hope, you know, comes sooner rather than later. But uh, other fighters could be a little different depending upon their weight class. And, and there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But ultimately, you know, the UFC and some of these promotions, they don't always take the best fighters. It's not about that. It still is an entertainment business. They're going to pick guys that they feel like are going to um, be super entertaining. All these guys are personalities and all this other stuff. So it's it's a it's an entertainment business before it's anything else. And that's important for people to understand. While the UFC, I feel like, um, has consistently has the best fighters across the board, um, they're not always the best fighters. Okay. Know? So, it's you know there is a little bit of that WWE aspect with everything. You know, they don't want boring fighters, and and, 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 and that, yeah, and that's not Pat at all. Pat is Pat's a finisher, fucks people up, head kicks them, submits them, you name it. I mean, he's nuts, right? But. Uh, you never know exactly what they're looking for and who and why and what, how many people they have their weight class, how many people are signed. So the big thing is just keep everyone ready and keep everyone going. Hopefully you get a phone call. You know, and if not, there are, there are plenty of other promotions. So when I think of a 145-pound man, I, I think that that's pretty small. 
Yeah. Uh, so what happens if a guy like that with Pat's experience bumps into a guy who's, you know, six, two at a bar, uh, you know, he's a real big guy, you know, he's yeah. built well, he maybe has some street credibility, like how, what happens in a situation like that? I mean, we talked about diffusing it before, which would probably be the goal, yeah, but yeah. like, uh, could somebody with Pat's experience at a smaller weight class, uh, handle himself properly with somebody who's a, a big guy on the street? Take Pat about five seconds, five seconds tops. People don't train, don't understand. The, the, it's 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 hard to it's hard to qual it's hard to quantify the difference between a trained professional fighter and an average Joe, even someone with limited fight experience. Doctors train 10, 15 years to become doctors, surgeons, and all that stuff. I have thirty years of fighting under my belt. Pat has been doing this stuff since he's been four years old. We have more training experience in our profession than most doctors do that are doing brain surgery on people. So what happens is every single day since we've been kids, we've been constantly putting ourselves in these situations and becoming battle-tested. And when it comes down to fighting, yeah, we don't want to fight or do anything like that. But if you ever fucked with a professional fighter, it would be curtains so fast. And these are guys, like, once again, you know, like, if I want to build a house, I go to an experienced contractor. I go to people who know what they're doing, people that do this stuff every day. And, and our job every day is to figure out how to kill you as fast as we possibly can. Not, like, beat you up. Like, our job is to, to, to know how to kill you faster, really, if you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of what we do. Right. Our job is to fucking kill you without breaking a sweat. So if you even try to throw a punch on some of us or whatever, now granted, if you're a giant football player and you're a killer athlete, you know, yeah, that could, you know, that could sway things like a little bit. It could keep you alive a little faster, you know, but there, there are videos online. You can see uh, there's a video with a guy named Roger Huerta. He's a Bellator fighter and he fights at 145 pounds and he fought one of the uh, Texas offensive linemen, a football player at a, at a, in a bar one day where this football player hit a woman. And uh, you know how big those guys are down in Texas. And Roger Huerta beat the shit out of them about as fast as you can beat the shit out of somebody. Do you guys ever train like that? Will you put a heavyweight in with somebody like Pat just so that way they kind of learn oh, each yeah. other? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. normal? Yeah. Well, you know, you, you want to play around and have some fun like that, you know, every once in a while. But ultimately, when you have these professional athletes and stuff like that, guys that rely on earning money from we're, – we're careful about who they go with. And also, too – we don't really let guys spar at our gym or do anything like that that aren't approved to do that because people can get hurt and, and, and things like that. So typically, if, you know, Pat's moved with, Pat moves with heavyweights and stuff like that all the time, guys that have been in the UFC and, and all that. But if we're going to do hard training, it's not worth putting those guys together because it's not realistic for them. It's not going to benefit either one of them. But if they're screwing around doing some, like, light, you know, sparring or something like that, that's one thing. But – you know, when you're talking about body weight and guys being on the ground and stuff, really to prepare for a fight or anything, it's just not even realistic for them. But, you know, really the professional, we try to encourage everyone to learn how to fight because once again, what happens is even if you kind of know how to fight, if, if I come up behind you and put you in a chokehold and you start freaking out, once again, if you don't have a little bit of that IQ to deal with some of that stuff like that, or not not even IQ, but 
the if you're not like used reaction, to doing it, right? yeah, exactly. If you're not used to giving the proper reactions for certain things, you're just going to go to sleep. And I could, if someone fucked me at a bar, I wouldn't even have to hit them. I could literally just walk around the bar and choke everyone out. <laughs> like, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. Um, and just so people just don't understand that. And so, so that's, that's another reason. But also, too, even a professional fighter, we could walk into a bar and we could be sitting there and we don't know that you're a fucking professional fighter. That's why we don't start shit with anyone. Yeah. You know, we don't know because we understand that you don't have to look like a big tough guy to be a complete killer. You know, a guy like Sabatini as well, you know, we joke around with him all the time because he's the nicest dude you will ever meet. The nicest guy. If you hung out with him for two seconds, you'd be like, there's no way this guy is Everybody tornado kicking people that. in the head. Everybody. Yeah. There's no way this guy, he's, he literally says things like golly and G still, you know, and he work, he loves, like he's, he's a family guy. He's like so close with his family and he's the nicest guy you meet. You'd be sitting next to him and you would have no idea that that guy would would kill everyone around you without even breaking a sweat. And that's the way like a lot of fighters are. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like most of the time it, it's the people that you least expect. You know, and then yeah. your big tough guys that act like big tough guys usually aren't really fitting the part. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, it's the guys you got to worry about nowadays that they, they don't, they, you know, like that like little millennial look, you know, and they're, they're killers. They're absolute killers. It's funny. I love seeing it because – I'm in the gym, you know, with these guys, and, yeah, and they just look like such goofballs. They come walking in the gym, and then you just see them on the mats. Man, they are on your back, and they are just taking it to you. And then as soon as they're done, you know, they're just like, go back to, you know, nerding it out. You know, you, you would just, you would never know. It, it's, it's a lot of fun to see. I mean, it really is across the board. So to, to kind of switch gears a little bit, uh, NPR, how long have you been doing that? I think we've been open for nine years, eight or, nine? eight or nine years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something like that. And your first facility was over in Fallsington. Yeah, and well, then... Falls Town. Uh, well, we were in uh, Falls Township, not in Fallsington. So, uh, yeah, we were in Fairless Hills. Okay, it was in that big white building, though. Yeah, right? yeah, yep. I remember going in yep. there. And then, uh, so you're now behind uh, the movie theater, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's next for NPR? Obviously, COVID's going to reshape <sighs> things, but yeah, what's next? We don't know. You know, we're, uh, we're open. You know, so right now we're still getting our athletes ready. You know, that never stopped, but, uh, we have a lot of members that already are coming back. We have new people that are signing up all those types of things, but we are fortunate that we, we are big enough where we have so much flexibility to run like no contact classes, do things like that. So our main thing right now is we set up a bunch of no contact classes as well. And the, the, the purposes with that is to once again engage the landscape of what's going to happen in over the next few months is, is there going to be a second wave? You know, if there's not going to be a second wave, we'll initially, I think what we'll do over a little bit of time is go back to all of our contact classes. But if there is a second wave or there's something else we have to be worried about as well, we want to make sure that uh, members have a little bit of peace of mind. You know, if you're a parent with a kid, you know, why not put them in no contact classes? Why not be a little bit more safe than, right. than, than sorry in certain things? So our, our thing is right now is we have it set up on both fronts uh, to make people feel comfortable about training, to kind of get people to dip their toes back in the water a little bit. Uh, but also moving forward, we have it set up this way because this could be the future of the way things are going to have to be. 
We don't, we, we don't know. So we just kind of try to strategically put ourselves in a place where we can make the right decisions moving forward to, to do so. I wonder if, uh, you know how right before shutdown there was gun lines at every gun store? Oh, yeah, Like yeah. Uh, hours and hours waits? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if now that it's over, people are like, well, maybe I should just learn how to handle myself better. And they're signing up at, you know, places like yours. Yeah. They should. And when all this shit started going down, I was kind of sitting there telling everyone, like, see, motherfuckers? This is what we've been telling you. You know, like, what's going to happen? You know, like, go get a gun, too, though. You know, yeah, we're all yeah. mostly gun owners, you know? Yeah. Like, like, I'm not stopping bullets with my teeth and shit, <laughs> you know? Like, so it's protect yourselves. Be right. prepared. And there are a lot of different ways to be prepared through something like this. Okay, you can be prepared through understanding self-defense. You can be prepared with firearms, firearms training, being secure in your home, being able to protect your family all those kind of things. You can prepare yourselves by, number one, being in fucking shape. Stop being a fucking lazy fucking fat ass. Get off the fucking couch and take care of your health. Like, that shit drives me crazy because one of the reasons we're, we're closed in quarantine is because people don't take any accountability for themselves or have any self-discipline to make themselves not potentially a target to, to become sick. If you, we, people just did that shit, we, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. We wouldn't have so many people potentially vulnerable to, to getting flus, to getting sick, to heart disease, to dying. So take care of yourself in that respect as well. Also, too, take care of yourself, prep a little bit. I mean, I know, like, people, you know, like, talk shit on, like, preppers and stuff. But when all this was going down, they're the ones sitting back like, see? Yeah. See? You know, like. They had all the toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get all that. Stock up a whole room of toilet paper, you know. But uh, have have ways for. I've already had all this shit because I'm just kind of a nut, anyways. You know, ways to purify your water, extra food, ammunition, uh, a plan, a strategy. If anything happens, I've already had masks and stuff. So when all this stuff started going down, I was able to donate masks to people. I was putting bags together for uh, of rubber gloves and masks for for elderly people. I was able to, to actually assist people and help people throughout all this because I was prepared going into it. So rather than get caught with your pants down, you know, we can all be help out as far as it, for a community if we're all prepared for something like this. We don't have to rely on the government, which will never do shit right. You know, is, for communities, the way, the way we all get through this as a community, you take your community – number one, you make yourself less of a target to get sick. You make yourself stronger. Mentally, you make your home stronger, you make your family stronger, that's automatically going to make your community stronger. Then it's going to make it uh, you available for if you do need to provide help to somebody or whatever, you can be there to lend a hand. You can be there to help set up community outreach things for people around you, which we were able to do, and I was able to see other people do as well. But a lot of people are sitting there with their thumbs up their asses, and they'll continue to do so. People, you know, I know so many people that smoke. Who are dying from this? A lot of smokers and obese people or elderly people. Everyone's going to get old. You can't do anything about that, yeah. right? Stop smoking, motherfuckers. Like, what the fuck are you doing? When I see people smoking after this, I'm going to be slapping cigarettes out of people's mouths, walking down the street. Like, this shit's going to – it drives me fucking crazy. Yeah. But there's just a certain level of accountability to everything, and I don't know if we're going to get there. No. Like, as a society, we, you know, we're, uh, we're overly dependent on other people fixing our problems. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think if, if people don't learn from this experience, we're just going to end up in the same hole, yeah. but worse. Like, people rag on doctors all the time, you know, for uh, over-prescribing people medication and shit. Well, what are you going to do as a doctor? Because you know, you know, Mary over there isn't going to take her fucking ass out and start, you know, exercising and losing weight. 
That's not going to happen. So they're just like, okay, well, here, take this pill. You know, and, and but it has to be on all sides. You know, people have to take personal responsibility for themselves. People have to be disciplined. They don't want to be. Some people are, some people aren't. Um, and unfortunately, that's the way it's always going to be. People want to band-aid things. People are more than happy to put a mask on rather than stop smoking. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it, it's absolutely crazy to me. But what we need to do is make sure, like, you know, I know I annoy the hell out of a lot of people on social media because I'm always very vocal with how I feel about these things. And I'm vocal because I do, get, I do care. I give a shit. I don't want to see my neighbors or people anywhere and people I love, my family. I don't want to see them getting sick. I don't want to see them. I want to see them live a happier life. I want to see them be able to walk up the fucking steps, you know, without carrying an extra 100 pounds strapped to their backs. You know, like that shit matters to me. So I'm always like, what are we doing here? You know, and obviously, like, even my family, they're like, will you please shut the fuck up? Like, you're driving me crazy, right? And I get it, but I care about that kind of stuff. I want to see everyone happier and healthier. Yeah. It, so speaking of which, like, outside of the fight training, you also do fitness classes yeah, too, yeah. right? So I actually knew a few people that were uh, going to NPR just for fitness, and that's how I found out that you guys were doing that. So is that like a boot camp that you're offering? We do boot camps. Um, we've, so we've got boot camps. we do, we have right now we've got our weight room open and we've had a lot of people just sign up just for weight room memberships because all the gyms are closed. So, um, that people have been taking advantage of that as well, but yeah, we've got a phenomenal boot camps and, uh, which we're actually getting ready to start running again this Wednesday. Okay. Um, uh, we're doing a lot of our boot camps right now we're doing outside. So we're doing Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings. Uh, we have a phenomenal boot camp instructor, swimming Irene. She's one of those instructors, too. She's out there working out with you. She doesn't just – me, like, when I run, stuff like that, I'm just kind of, like, pointing and shit. Yeah. <laughs> Lift that. Let's do that. Let's go. Come on, guys, harder. She's literally doing all the burpees with you. She's out there. I mean, she is ripped. She is rocking. She is phenomenal. She's super motivated, always in shape. She's one of the trainers. She lives it, breathes it, does it type of people, and it's just contagious when you're around her. They're always the best coaches. The when best. they have you know, real life experience and what they're actually coaching. Yeah. When, yeah. You know, when you, uh, when you have these people, they live it and they do it and they're in it and they're passionate about it. Hell yeah. It makes it a lot easier to, to, to follow suit, you know? So if our, uh, if our audience wants to follow you, uh, follow your gym or follow, uh, Sambo, how would they do that? A few different ways. We're all over social media on everything. Um, so you can easily just kind of look at the gym, like NPR Endurance. You can go to the website. There's a bunch of social media links or on Facebook and NPR MMA for Instagram. Uh, I'm Eric Purcell, which is E-R-I-K underscore Purcell, P-U-R-C-E-L-L. But we're all over Instagram. We have YouTube channels. We have like a lot of great videos and content uh, for people that maybe want to start learning how to kind of box and move around. So we've got some instructional videos but really nothing, once again, is going to supplement just getting into the gym and having trained professionals sit there and help you and correct you and, and help teach you. Because fighting isn't just fighting. You know, there's strategy involved. And so there's a lot of strategy in self-defense. But once again, you have to do this repetitiously. Like you have to be in their training because you could do a seminar where, you know, you think you're learning how to get out of a fucking move or something, right? People forget that, you know, and... They don't know how to react in these situations. So get in and train. Look us up. It's what we do. We're here for you. We're part of the community. We train FBI and all the police around. And 
all the police have been coming in and using our gym while we've been shut down. So uh, <laughs> it's the place to be. Do you, uh, do you have like a video tour? Your facility is amazing. Oh, thank uh, you. You know, just from the, the first facility, which wasn't bad at all, uh, to the second one, it's just gorgeous. Do you have oh, like a you. tour so people can really see what you're doing there? We do. I think on the main page of our YouTube page, uh, which if you just type in like NPR endurance, like Michael Paul Robert NPR, uh, it'll take you to the homepage. And I think it's maybe like one of the first videos that plays. I kind of do like this athlete search and kind of take you like on a little video tour through the gym and stuff like that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, if we're a large facility. We have a lot of different areas to train in. We probably have more mat space than almost any other gym in the state of Pennsylvania besides maybe Penn State. So we've got a lot of mat space, a lot of bags and stuff like that. Great instructors, great team. Um, we don't do any of the politics stuff. We have a lot of people that come in from other gyms. We just had a former UFC champion in uh, yesterday training. And so we get a lot of guys in, a lot of high-level guys, and just like to have some fun, mix it up. Cool. So, guys, if you can, uh, go take a look at what Eric's doing with NPR Endurance. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again. I would love to come on. Yeah, yeah thank you. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it.